Please listen carefully. 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 Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast, where two reasonable social scientists discuss important topics by presenting just the facts and none of the unneeded opinions and bias. I'm Lauren Seppard, here with my co-host, Allie Dagnus. How are you today, Allie? I am great, Lawrence. We have a great show today about social security, which I know. Wait, before you turn, don't don't turn off the podcast. Um, it's not. We're not. We're not explaining. We're not explaining social security. Um, what we are going to be talking about is the question: Is it really broken? We always hear social security is broken. Um, is it really broken? Why does everybody think it's broken? And what do the data say? So that is going to be. Fantastic. We're going to be joined by Kathleen Romig from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. She is an expert in this field. And so we are going to have this terrific conversation that is interesting about Social Security. But before we even get there, um, you know, it's the summertime. It's nine million degrees outside. (laughs) It is so unbearably hot. If you are just outside for a second, you just start sweating. Um, So are you enjoying this lovely summer? Lawrence, <laughs> with that setup, that sounds so happy. I do not do heat well. I walk outside and if it's even like 85 or above, I'm like, oh, I live on the sun now. <laughs> <laughs> so when it's 9,000 degrees, because, you know, <laughs> 85 would feel, I think, rather blissful around here. Uh, you must be melting then. Yep. I'm just a puddle of sweat. <laughs> Uh, okay, so it's summer outside and um, and it's hot and you're miserable. What are you doing to stay unmiserable? Or are you just like leaning into the misery? Are you like, yeah, sand, blah. Yeah, just, you know, slogging through it. I, I've uh, just finished up quite a few research projects. So uh, not a very fun summer, but interesting summer. I'm learning a lot as I am delving into these data. How about you? What is your, uh, I know you're a big summer reader. So are you I reading am. anything interesting? Well, you know, first you're talking, I like the way you're like, I'm doing a lot of very serious work. And, <laughs> and you, <laughs> you, the dingling half of our podcast duo, um, you like to read about romance. And that's true. I, I didn't do. say you were doing bad reading. Okay, I didn't say. <laughs> light, light fiction. It's true. It is true. No, whenever I am doing research, here's the fun part of our office building. Um, the offices are paired so that if you want air conditioning and you don't have the air conditioning unit in your office and the person who's next to you who does have the air conditioning like adjuster in their office, if they're not there, you don't get air conditioning unless you like pop open their door, run in and wave your hands up in the air and you wave them like you just don't care because you're sweating <laughs> like you're on the sun and it's sticky and gross and culturally horrible. relevant reference. Go Thank ahead. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, uh, so, you know, working in our office building in the summertime has always been a bit brutal and um, and in my case, smelly because I will go, I will go and I do not have the control of the air conditioning that is in my, my neighbor's office. And um, and so I just basically try as hard as I can to not sweat until I'm a big pool of yuck uh, and get my work done. And then I come home into my air conditioning and I read fiction and I like fiction. I'm a big fiction fan. So I I have a favorite book and I have a story to go with my favorite book. Do all of your books have like um, 
the artwork with the man with the shirt open and the big muscles. First of all, that's not just a man. Nine times out of ten, that's Fabio. And um, <laughs> okay, wait, digression. Do you remember, or are you too young? Do you remember when Fabio was promoting a roller coaster and he was hit in the face with a pigeon? Do you remember this? Who's Fabio? Okay, never mind. You got to Google this. It's funny. Although someone told me later it was really like very dangerous and he got, he was very hurt by the pigeon. But just the idea that Fabio, who's on the cover of every romance novel in the entire world with his long hair and his muscles and stuff was hit in the face with a pigeon. I don't know. Somehow that just, it just did it for me. But I, but I digress. Um, now, all of the books that I read do not have Fabio on the picture. Not that you know who Fabio is. Um, they are, they are good lighter fiction um a lot of people recommend like oh you're gonna love this it's really moving i'm like nope i'm out i have zero interest in reading anything that's sad or scary because life gives us sad and scary for free and i even with a discount on on amazon or you know whatever like i, I don't need to pay for it so <laughs> i like happy light fun fiction and um, and this summer, I was very, very, very excited because my favorite writer, who is a man named Matthew Norman, actually, I have enough favorite writers as my daughter has like best friends, which is to say, we're not using the words favorite or best in the literal sense of the terms because I have like <laughs> five favorite writers. But one of them is Matthew Norman. And he has a new book out called All Together Now. And I strongly recommend I, I recommend all of his all of his books. Um, he's just a great voice. He's he's your age, Lawrence. He's a he's a child, <laughs> and he writes really nicely about parenting and about marriage. And it's just his prose is gorgeous. He really does great character development, and uh, he lives in Baltimore. And this summer, his book it takes place in Fenwick Island, Delaware, which is where my beach place is. Oh, so wow. I was so excited. So I saved it. I got it, and. Um, you know, I pre-ordered it and then I forgot that I pre-ordered it and I pre-ordered it again, which I thought that's not a problem <laughs> because if I love it, which I knew I was going to, I was going to end up buying a dozen copies of it and giving them out as presents, which I am. Um, and oh my gosh, it's so good. And it takes place in this house in Fenwick, which is on my walking. Like every morning I get up and I walk oh, like wow. three miles or something. And so I spent, I just got back from um, a brief couple days there and I spent two hours yesterday morning <laughs> trying to figure out which house it was by walking, running up onto the sand, like looking around. Does that house have a pool? Does that house have a pool? Nope, it's not that one. Walk back down <laughs> onto the street. Keep walking out another like six houses. Go up onto the sand. Is it that house? Is it that house? And I think I've narrowed it down. The technical term for that, I believe, is stalking. It is stalking. Yes, it is. <laughs> now, it is. It's it's very um like appropriate and polite stalking um and when i finally i believe i did find the house I do appropriate and polite stalking I, that's what i want our next utterly moderate t-shirt to say utterly moderate appropriate and polite stalkers and by the way if you've ever gotten any of lawrence's emails beseeching you to be a guest on utterly moderate I believe that they fall into the appropriate and polite stalking category. All right. Well, now that we're throwing shade, all right, <laughs> let me just stretch a little bit here. <laughs> I was gonna, I was gonna eat this, but you know, uh, <laughs> you mentioned your daughter. Every one of her friends is her favorite. Uh, 
to future guests of Utterly Moderate, uh, every one of you <laughs> in the email after you've been on the show is her new favorite guest. Hey, you know why? Because every time I write that, I really mean it in the moment. I get so excited, even about topics that I totally don't understand. You know what's um, funny about that? When I read your emails, I actually legitimately can see in your email. She really means that. This is her oh, I really mean guest. <laughs> um, yeah. No, I'm sorry. We have we have really good experts on our show, which actually leads us to our expert today, I believe. That's right. Uh, we're going to be speaking with Kathleen Romig, who's from the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, who's done a tremendous amount of research on a whole variety of government programs, including Social Security, and we will be speaking with her up next. Okay, well, we are delighted to be joined by Kathleen Romig, who is a senior policy analyst at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities in Washington, D.C. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities, it is a think tank which analyzes the impact of federal and state government policies. And Kathleen Romig has done just some excellent, excellent research in this area. And if you're looking for an expert on Social Security, I don't know that you could find a better one, which makes me really excited about this conversation. So, Kathleen Romig... Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. So you work at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities uh, in Washington, D.C. So could you tell us a little bit about what that uh, think tank does and sort of broadly what the think tank does, but then what your role is there and the kind of work that you do within that organization? Sure. Well, the Center on Budget focuses mostly on policies that affect lower and middle income Americans. And we are always looking to think about that in a really data-driven way and to think about how to finance those programs responsibly over the long term. In my specific role at the center, I focus on Social Security and Supplemental Security Income, or SSI, um, as well as paid leave. Now, uh, for academics like myself, it's... um you know, there are think tanks that we know are do very good work because they're sort of part of the academic conversation and they're respected by others and their work is checked and they're using methods that are very similar to those that are being used by academics. And then there are some think tanks that aren't, right? So um, it's a very different kind of world. I think your think tank is pretty center of the road. Can you, why should we trust the work that, uh, that your center does? Well, I think that's right. I think we really do try to follow the best research and data practices that we can. And I guess one example of that, one of the most popular reports that I do every year is something that the Social Security Administration used to publish, which was showing how many people would be in poverty if they didn't have Social Security benefits. Um, And they stopped publishing that several years ago, and we started publishing it using exactly the same methodology they did. And it's one of our most popular pieces. It's something that people really want to know. And I can say this honestly to you, Kathleen, uh, as a as a scholar of economic inequality and poverty, this is not just for the air. I would say this to you if we weren't being taped right now. Please don't stop doing that analysis. Thank uh, you. It's so useful. <laughs> <laughs> when you show sort of what the um, non-Social Security poverty rate would be and what it is with Social Security. We'll get to that in a moment. We'll talk about in, in at length what you do with that. But very, very useful for us researchers. So thank you. Can you talk about the history of Social Security? 
tell us a little bit, you know, why it was instituted, when it was instituted, what was the rationale behind it? Sure. Well, the program was really born of the Great Depression. You know, there was just massive unemployment and massive hardship. And there were a couple of goals, really. It started out just as an old age program, just it was called old age insurance. And it was for it was the reasons were twofold. One is because older people were really suffering. There were many people who were poor, you know, they were relying on family members often who weren't employed themselves because of the depression, um, or poor houses because those existed back then. And the other reason was to get older workers out of the labor market, that there weren't enough jobs to go around. And at that point, it was in everyone's interest if some people left the labor market and left the jobs for other people. And so that's less of a purpose now, but at that point, it really made sense. So let's let's go over some of the basics of the program. So um, let's talk about the different ages you can qualify to start receiving Social Security and sort of what proportion of benefits you get at the different ages. Mm-hmm. So all benefits are based on the earnings of a worker. And so the um, so I guess we can start with retirement because that's the most common benefit. And um, the higher your lifetime earnings, the higher your benefit. But the benefit formula is progressive. And so you get a higher replacement rate of greater proportion of your earnings are replaced by your benefit if you're a lower earner. And so the replacement rate varies, but on average, Social Security replaces about 40% of someone's lifetime earnings. And so that's for retirement. And then you get different proportions of that for different types of benefits. So a widow would get 100% of her deceased spouse's benefit if she qualifies for a widow benefit, for example. Um, Or a surviving child would get 75% of their parents' benefit. Um, child of a retiree would get 50% of their parents' benefit. So there's like different um, amounts for different uh, benefit types. But there's a further complication that it depends on when you're retired, depends on when you retire. So if you retire early, you get a smaller check. If you delay your retirement, you can delay all the way up to age 70. You actually get a bigger check than you would otherwise get. I noticed you used the word she or her mm-hmm. in there, the pronouns. And I have a strong suspicion that was on purpose because Social Security, I've seen your work and others, Social Security uh, benefits different groups differently and some groups depend upon it more than others, right? Yes. And if I were being a real stickler, I would use a gender neutral term there because survivor benefits are for both men and women for the lower earning spouse. And in fact, one of the cases that really made Ruth Bader Ginsburg's career was suing the Social Security Administration because those survivor benefits weren't gender neutral from the beginning. They're gender neutral now, but it's really kind of a name only, like 99% of um, widow slash widower benefits are in fact widows. And so it is, it's a little easier to say she. That's why, that's why being a, a male at a retirement community makes you a stud. Exactly. Exactly. That's exactly why. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so my next question is, how effective is Social Security? What kind of impact does it have on elderly poverty? Sure. So yeah, like I said, we use the exact same method as the Social Security Administration did when it published this data every year. And it's very, very simple analysis, just taking elderly people's income and and subtracting out their Social Security benefit and seeing how many people are in poverty without it. And about a third of the elderly would be in poverty without their Social Security benefits. And interestingly, that is very similar to the number of elderly who were in poverty before Social Security 
existed. Um, now, of course, I think people would behave differently in the absence of Social Security. They possibly save more or work longer. So it's not completely, you know, we, we, we can't say that that's exactly what would happen in the absence of Social Security. But we can say that it makes an enormous difference in the well-being of it, not just elderly people, but all people who receive it. Particularly when you pair it with Medicare, right? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. So I'm sure you're aware the Urban Institute a few years back put out a report. And what they basically were showing was, look, this is a social insurance program. Uh, It's going to pay for as long as you live, even if you outlive how much you pay in. And in fact, they found for the typical American, that actually was the case. The typical American will burn through more benefits than they put into the program Mm -hmm. by the time that they die, which means so I think that gets to the point of what you're saying, which is. Yes, you could act differently in the absence of Social Security. You could save. But given how long people are living now, yes. it's likely this program works better than savings, right? Yes. And also, just given what happens in people's lives, I think everyone starts out with good intentions of saving, but then a pandemic hits and you lose your job for a year, or then you get divorced, or you get sick, or all kinds of things happen to people, and they're suddenly unable to save and suddenly having to tap into those savings that they were hoping to put away for their retirements. And the thing about Social Security is it's essentially forced savings where you do, you keep paying every job that you have, you keep, everybody keeps pooling their money year after year, and it is there no matter what happens. You know, Franklin Roosevelt called it the hazards and vicissitudes of life, you know, that despite whatever happens with those hazards and vicissitudes of life, you, you keep contributing and that keeps building up. And like you said, because it's pooled, somebody who lives longer, it doesn't have to worry about outliving their savings or someone who gets disabled earlier doesn't have to worry about, oh, they haven't built up much of a nest egg to, to date. So that's kind of the beauty of it is pooling it all together. They do like the middle income earner, yeah. low income earner, then like the high income. I do remember that. Yeah. And one thing that we sometimes say on that topic, like one time, one thing we sometimes say about money's worth analysis is it's great if you get more than your money's worth or you get your money's worth out of social security, meaning you get the same amount that you put in or even more than you put in. But it's also an insurance program. And you know, when I buy homeowner's insurance and my house doesn't burn down, I'm not like, dang it, I wasted those premiums. I wish my house had burned down and I got a big settlement. I'm actually really happy that <laughs> my house is still intact. Just like I think it's we should be grateful when we don't need to use disability benefits because we're able to, you know, continue to earn a living in a way that people who have a life-altering disability sometimes can't, or we're happy that our spouses survived into retirement. And so we're not, you know, getting that survivor's benefit. I'd rather have my spouse, frankly, you know, so I think it's that kind of analysis is important, but there are also limits to it because we, social security is there for us in our worst times. And when we are able to escape some of those worst times, we should be happy that we don't need it. Yeah. and And I often have this conversation with my students, which is, you know, if you think about Social Security, think about what think about it as social insurance, as you said, like if you were to run out of savings, think about your position in the labor market at 80, at yeah. 85 and your ability to then say, OK, I'm going to now go make up this income in some way. Yeah, that's very different than if you had faulty fire insurance at 20 yes. and you could start over. You can't really yeah. start over at that point. Right. No, no, right. exactly. Kathleen, can you tell us a little bit how Social Security is funded? Who pays for it and and how is this done? Well, the number one source of funding is payroll taxes. So, you know, I'm paying payroll taxes and you're paying payroll taxes in every single paycheck. And almost all of those taxes immediately turn around and go to pay for current beneficiaries. You know, my parents and all the other millions of beneficiaries who are currently getting benefits. 
And that's the first source of revenue. Then there are also a few other sources of revenue that are smaller, like taxation of benefits for higher earning workers. Um, But that's the main one. And in order to sustain financing for a program like that, you need to have workers working. And so in time, it looked a little dicey this last year um, when so you know tens of millions of people were out of work, uh, actually turned around pretty quickly though. Um, and where we thought, ooh, that's gonna, that could actually affect social security's financing like in the medium term that we have fewer people on payrolls to pay those payroll taxes. And so you need to get the balance right between the number of workers paying into the system and the number of beneficiaries getting their earned benefits out of the system. And so when that's not totally in alignment, then you have a financing problem that you need to solve. And that's basically where we are now. One thing I think is important for people to know, I saw a survey recently, I think done by the Social Security Administration, where they asked Americans, um, how dependent will you be on Social Security when you retire? And many Americans were quite, um, quite wrong about how dependent they were going to be. So can you give us some idea of how major of a source of income it is for what number of people? Sure. Well, most retirees rely on Social Security for most of their income. So more than half of American retirees have Social Security as their number one source of income. And I think you're right. People don't expect that. They don't. For one thing, it's when you look at the, say, the balance of a retirement account, if you have hundreds of thousands of dollars in a retirement account, that sounds like an awful lot. And when you look at a monthly Social Security benefit check, that's measured in, you know, maybe at best like 2000 a month. And it maybe doesn't sound like that much. But when you think about making that nest egg last for decades, well, it doesn't go as far sometimes as I think people expect it to. Whereas those Social Security checks keep flowing and the value of those checks is, you know, is inflation protected and they, you know, they're more valuable than people really understand. It used to be said that touching social security was like the third rail of politics, that it's just too popular. doesn't matter where you look, what demographic group you look at. doesn't matter if you look by race, ethnicity, et cetera, old, young, it's really, really popular. Is that still the case? Is it still just overwhelmingly popular in the U S yeah, I think that is true. I think, you know, I've seen definitely pulling on like different solutions. Do, would people be, willing to pay more versus get less. And overwhelmingly, people are would rather pay more than get less out of the system. But even just looking at recent years politics, I mean, Republicans back in the Bush years were looking at some really major changes to the program. And, you know, that has really changed where President Trump ran on a platform of never touching Social Security. And that seemed to be really popular with his base. And that seems to, you know, the rest of Republicans seem to be following his lead on that and just essentially not talking about it. They're not offering different kind of solution. They're just saying, we're not going to touch it. So yes, I think it does seem quite literally to be a third rail, almost where they're just, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to touch it. <laughs> Let's get to the problems. So, yes. uh, if you look at the, the ratio of workers to beneficiaries, it's been falling for a long time, right? And that's the, the primary problem. So um, the question people want to know is, is Social Security broken? And the answer is absolutely not. They're going to they're going to they're going to want you to expand upon. It. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> as long as people are working, as long as people are paying into the system as they must, Social Security will keep paying benefits. And the question now for us as a society is how much do we want to pay in and how much do we want to get out right now? We're not 
paying in enough to sustain the benefit levels that people are getting out now. We can't do that forever. Um, it, when the Social Security's reserve funds are depleted, um, they the Social Security's actuaries expect that the uh, current payroll taxes will be able to fund about 75% of current benefits. And 75% is pretty good, but <laughs> nobody really wants 75%. They want the whole thing. Um, and so we have to figure out, well, are we going to pay more or are we going to take a benefit cut? How are we going to how are we going to solve this math problem? But it's essentially an arithmetic problem. It's not a, it's not, I think people think the program is just going to disappear one day and they, you know, they hear the trust funds and they think, oh, the trust funds are, I mean, you hear this rhetoric in the media every year when the trustees report comes out um, and it'll be coming out again soon. I'm sure we'll see it again soon where they say, oh, the trust funds are running dry or they're running out. And that's just not how it works. Every two weeks, they get a whole new infusion of cash from people's paychecks. And so I think that, if I could make people understand one thing about Social Security is that it will always be there. We may have to kind of renegotiate the deal between the generations about how big it is and how much we pay, um, but it will always be there. So around around what year? I know you can't pinpoint the exact year, but around what year do we get to the point where we're at 75%? So it's a, a I, right as of the last trustees report, they were saying 2035. And, um, you know, we're getting this new trustees report. We were pretty worried a year ago that it was going to, that the Social Security's financial position was really going to significantly deteriorate. But things are looking a lot better now. So I think, you know, from what we're hearing now, it seems like, yeah, it might be a little, the system might be a little bit worse off financially than before the pandemic, but not substantially. So 2035, um, you start had to pay less in benefits because of, of the, the trust fund running out. Now, eventually, you know, fertility rates have to hit a bottom, right? Like we're not going to go down to 1.4 or something like that. Like it's, we're eventually going to settle somewhere, even if it's slightly below replacement, it's going to be somewhere around replacement. So is that just 75% into the future? Or are we expecting yeah, that it's not? They point? actually expect it to plateau. Yes, right. exactly. Right. And you're also right that fertility rates are the biggest driver of this mismatch right. between the number of workers and the number of beneficiaries. So 75% is sort of the floor of what we should mm -hmm. expect. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we can either deal with that or we can bring it back up to somewhere higher than 75%. So let's talk about the ways that we can get those benefits back up to 100%. So there are a variety of ones. My favorite one, one I think you also favor, is removing the earnings cap. So tell us what is the earnings yes. cap? Where is, it, where is it set at right now? And how would that fix the problem? So, you know, we've been talking about payroll taxes. Payroll taxes, you pay 6.2% of your wages, and then your employer pays another 62 on every dollar that you earn. And up to a cap. So the cap is about $140,000. And so if you earn more than that amount, um, you just don't pay taxes above that amount. So what happens is say someone earns $200,000 and part, partway through the year, they just stop paying social security taxes. Um, and then they don't earn benefits based on those earnings in excess of the cap. Now, the issue with that is the last time policymakers set that cap about 40 years ago now, um, they it covered 90% of all of the earnings in the American economy. And now because of really significantly increased wage inequality, it's only covering something like 83% of wages in the economy. And so there's there are many more wages that are above that cap now because we have, you know, a small number of people who are earning a lot more money than than they were a generation ago. 
And so one way that we could change that cap is by saying, okay, we always want it to cover, say, 90% of wages in the economy like it used to. Another way is just to get rid of the cap altogether. And if you did either one of those things, really, you'd have to decide, so do on those newly taxed earnings, are we going to pay a benefit on that? If we do pay a benefit on that, how, you know, how generous of a benefit will it be? Will it be just sort of a token amount or will it be a substantial amount? And that would, of course, affect how much how that affects the trust fund financing as well. Okay, so let's say you do something reasonable, 90% of income, and there's benefits on that. Um, what else, let's say, we, let's say we go that route. Now that's your preferred route and my preferred yeah. route. Mm-hmm. What else would you have to pair with that to get to full benefits? To get to full benefits. Increase, well, increase another, in payroll taxes? or A payroll tax increase. And it could be a fairly modest payroll tax increase if it were paired with other things. You know, like right now it's 6.2%, say raising it to 7%. You know, that could get you part of the way. I, unfortunately, I don't have these numbers like offhand in my head. Um, uh, but that could get you part of the way. Another thing that could get you part of the way is um, applying the payroll tax to the value of fringe benefits. When policymakers last looked at Social Security in 1983, um, there just weren't as many fringe benefits as there are now, things like, you know, so-called cafeteria plans where you're you're getting your, say, transit subsidy or your FSA or all these different things, and they are exempt from payroll tax. Um, also, the value of health insurance has just climbed dramatically since 1983, the last time they opened up these questions. And simply applying the payroll tax to the value of health ins- employer-provided health insurance would make a big difference. And, um, you know, some people on the right, including my former boss, uh, Andrew Biggs, who's now at AEI, you know, I've talked to him about this and he says he likes that idea because it could help constrain healthcare costs as well. Um, and so, you know, there are different reasons for, um, for favoring that kind of policy. And another reason is not everybody gets their health and in- health insurance through work and the people who get it on the private market do have to pay taxes on the wages that they earn to purchase that insurance. And so it would kind of level the playing field between people who do have generous benefits at work and those who don't. So there are some other ways we could do this. Um, We could reduce benefits. Yes, definitely. And I think the, the most commonly discussed way of doing that is by raising what's known as the full retirement age. So that, you know, for people born in 1960 or later, the full retirement age is 67. And, you know, raising that age to 68, 69, even 70. Another thing people have uh, proposed, and again, it's not all that popular, would be to make it another means tested program, right? Where uh, depending upon your income, you're really not getting a benefit, right? Right. Um, Explain that to us. So that, I mean, we already have supplemental security income SSI that's severely means tested for the forest retirees. I think that one of reason for Social Security's durable popularity is that it's a benefit for everybody. It's a benefit that you earn. It's a benefit that you get no matter what your circumstances. And I think that restricting eligibility would really undermine that. And I think people would not <laughs> be very unhappy about it. I mean, who votes the most older people? I don't think they would be very happy <laughs> if suddenly they, they became ineligible or suddenly their benefits weren't very valuable. I think we have like a little bit of um, you know, I I would call it very late means testing because we have taxation of benefits starting after the 1983 amendments where highest income beneficiaries do have some of their benefits taxed back. 
um, but it's only a portion of their benefits and they're taxed at, at about the same about the same way that a private pension would be taxed. And that's only for the highest income beneficiaries. So there is something like that. And that's another, you know, that's an increasingly important revenue source for social security. But I think that's about probably as far as we'll ever go in terms of means testing. And that's not really a means test. Yeah. And a point you made, which is um, a pretty standard assumption in uh, the social sciences and the study of poverty and economic inequality and social welfare, which is uh, the popularity of programs hinges on the populations that they benefit and notions of deservedness, right? So the elderly, just as a block, are seen as deserving. They've worked their entire lives. They've paid in. And, and I'm not saying it's wrong to think that means-tested folks are mm-hmm. deserving. I right. mean, I wouldn't be studying this stuff if I didn't think that was the case. Right. But at least in the American mind, the popularity starts to really take a hit. Yes, it's going to poorer folks or non-white folks or whatever. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, There's no stigma attached to getting social security. It's something people celebrate. They're excited. They're happy. They share. It's a milestone. It's not, you know, other forms of benefits. You're right. They have stigma and even shame attached to them. And that's just not the case with social security because it's something that's for everybody. Yeah. You can't really other the elderly because it's something we're all going to experience, which is aging. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's as close to universal as anything we have. Despite the fact that, as my colleague Mark Rank has found over and over again, most of us will be poor in our lifetimes. So mm-hmm. you can't really other the poor either, but, uh, but we, we do, do that anyway. But <laughs> so I'm a political scientist, and um, I also am researching in media. So obviously, I pay a lot of attention to the political rhetoric and the messaging about different government programs. And I frequently hear politicians make horrifying claims about social security. And at the same time, you're telling us that the program is not broken. It's true because truly the social security trustees report is about to come out. And I'm sure that we're going to see these headlines that say things like bankrupt, running dry, all this dramatic stuff. And I think, you know, I don't think that the people who write those stories or write those headlines are attempting to mislead. I think there's some misunderstanding about what it means. I, I think there's some, drama that's sort of inherent to all forms of news. And then I think there have been some politicians who have mischaracterized it on purpose. I think, you know, in the Bush years, for example, there was this talk of calculating the social security's deficit across the infinite horizon. Like, what does that even mean? The infinite horizon. Uh, How could we ever possibly pay these absurdly large numbers that they came up with the hole that social security faces? It's just, it's completely daunting. Whereas if you put it in terms of, okay, well, if instead of paying 6.2%, we all paid 7% of our salary and you start to think like, oh, that's another like five or 10 bucks a paycheck. I could afford that, you know, that's a very different ballgame. When you think I could get 100% of benefits if only I I contributed uh, the equivalent of like a cup of coffee every week to Social Security. Well, okay, that actually suddenly starts to seem manageable. But when you're talking about like bajillions of dollars or whatever they were coming up with in their, their estimates of that era, then it feels really insurmountable. And it feels like you have to break the program in half in order to fix it. So we should believe you and the actuaries. Yes. Definitely the actual. Kathleen, we know that you really believe Social Security is sound, but how optimistic are you really about the program, given the realities of the politics around it and the conversations we're having about it today? I actually feel very confident that over the medium term, we're going to work this out. I think that people would go crazy if you 
did anything too drastic with Social Security. I think that, you know, understanding that the people who rely on Social Security the most now, the elderly, are also the best voters, and they're very protective of Social Security. And um, observing what happened during the Bush years when they were talking about making radical changes, and that was just roundly unpopular. And now it's been, you know, pretty much, at least on the Republican side of the aisle, pretty much, you know, ignored for a generation. I think that it, it's hard for me to see anything very unpopular actually passing. Also, just because of the structure of um, how things work in the Senate, uh, you need 60 votes to make any changes to Social Security. So you have to come up with something that's acceptable to both parties in order to move forward on Social Security. And so I, I can't, I just can't imagine, I mean, right now in the Democratic Party, in context of the Republican Party, um, that's kind of ignoring it. The Democrats are really looking at expanding it, not just fully funding it, but also expanding it. So I think, you know, it's hard for me to imagine anything that would really threaten benefits in a serious way, at least based on how things have realigned over the last 20 years between the parties. To get 60 votes, you really would need to do something that really wasn't going to significantly harm the program. Um, but yeah, do I think it's going to happen like this year? No, nobody thinks it's going to happen this year. Like it doesn't have to happen right now. And I think there's going to have to be a forcing event. There was a forcing event in 1983 where the trust funds were, you know, um, and the trust funds are just the reserves, you know, uh, in addition to payroll taxes, the trust funds were um, beginning to to be depleted. That's going to happen again, you know, in another, we'll see, 15 years or so. And I think it's probably going to take an event like that for people to really sit down and compromise. But they will. I feel totally confident they will. <laughs> you feel a lot better about our political system than I do. <laughs> um, but what would you say when you look out across the political landscape, you look out across the popular discourse, the water cooler, just things you hear every day from people, what would you say are some of the biggest misconceptions, misunderstandings about the program out there just among the populace? The major thing, of course, is this notion that it's going somewhere, that it's not going to be there for people, um, when in fact, as long as people are working, the benefits will continue to flow. Um, and then I guess, like you said, on the political landscape, I think there's this notion that like, like nobody's paying attention or no one's trying anything. And I think while it's true, it's not on at the top of the political agenda right now. I would never argue that that's true. Um, I think there has been a real realignment. I've been working on this issue for 20 years there's been a significant realignment between the parties over the last 20 years on where they stand on this. You know, when I started working on this, it was during the Bush years and in president Bush was pushing partial privatization, private accounts, you know, all these different things that really would have changed the fundamental nature of the program. And after that, it was just crickets, you know, just nothing. And then president Trump ran on this, this platform of never touching social security. And, and it just seems like that's where things are now on the Republican side of the aisle. There's just kind of nothing on the democratic side of the aisle. It's dramatically different. Like when I was, um, you know, my, one of my first jobs was at the social security administration. And when we would look at different options, it was always either cutting benefits or raising taxes, never anything to improve benefits um, and, or to cut taxes for that matter. Um, and that has really shifted where the, there's a proposal in the House that has almost every House member co-signing, you know, co-sponsoring it. And um, that that proposal would increase benefits. President Biden and his campaign um, would increase benefits. Uh, President Obama at the end of his term came out in favor of increasing benefits. And so and they also all of these 
various bills or proposals would also increase revenues enough to fully fund the program and then of course pay for those um, for those improvements as well. And so I think that you know there's been a, actually a, a lot going on in the social security policy world as far as you know where the two parties are, but I I don't think people I don't know like are kind of aware you mentioned the party realignment. It is really interesting. This is a really interesting time with, you know, starting with things like Occupy and then Black Lives Matter and Me Too. I mean, it does seem like people are becoming more aware of the structural nature of at least some social problems. Social Security came out of the Great Depression. It was a communitarian solution to a society-wide structural problem. And we're in another one of those moments. I mean, we had a Great Depression moment with the pandemic, and we are having a whole different kind of way to look at problems and consider solutions than we were a year and a half ago. Yeah, I feel, I mean, of all the programs, um, you know, we're all well aware, especially now, after the past decade, or even maybe five years, we're all well aware of how futile it can be to show data to folks who are emotionally invested in a position. So I'm, I'm well aware that like, even if a program works well, that if people don't see it as going to deserving folks or it isn't popular, you can demonize it despite the data. My hope is that, you know, this is such a popular program. It works so well. And like you said, it's, we're in this context now where we're all so fearful of the way the world can change and we can become so insecure so quickly I am hopeful of all the programs that I think could be killed. Um, this is one that I don't feel like, I feel like we're going to eventually, it may take a crisis. Yes. I think it will take a crisis. Yeah. 11.59 PM hour crisis. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, um, so Kathleen, so obviously some of these resources are going to be stuff that's at the center on budget and policy priorities and some are not, but what are some great online resources for folks to understand these types of issues to maybe some calculators, things like that, some places they can go to, I don't know, to explore this issue further? Well, I would point people first to the Social Security Administration's website. They have something called My Social Security and you can go they have calculators that are so much better than the calculators you could get, you know, online at a different source because you can, they can use your own earnings history, your own circumstances to give you estimates of what your benefit might, your benefit would be, you know, on your current trajectory. That's awesome. So that's really awesome and really valuable. And you can even kind of game out different scenarios. So that's a really valuable tool. I would not waste my time with, you know, kind of calculators on random websites when you can go and use your own data. Uh, So that's one place I would go. Of course, at the Sarum Budget, I think we have some really good stuff. One of our most popular Social Security reports is just called the Social Security Top Top Ten Facts about Social Security, and it can can lead you through some of these things that I think are often misunderstood about Social Security, and it's really accessible. And so I think that um, is a one good resource. And then we have something specifically about the trust funds, just because that is something that people often don't understand. So how does how do the Social Security trust funds work? And I think when people understand that, then they feel a lot more confident about their future. So we were talking to some economists recently on a previous episode about the gender pay gap. And I know you've done some work on that as well. So. Um, Talk to us a little bit about how the U.S. compares to other OECD countries on paid uh, parental leave and the impact that that has on working families and on the gender pay gap. Absolutely. Well, the U.S. is the only OECD nation, only wealthy nation 
without paid parental leave. <laughs> the only <laughs> <USA>. one. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. We're number one. And, you know, we also don't have um, short-term medical leave and we also don't have caregiving leave. And most of the other OECD nations have both of those things. And it's interesting because the gender pay gap is real, but if you drill down into it, it is also a motherhood pay gap because women, you know, before women have children, their pay is often very comparable to that of men. But after they have children, men's pay tends to remain pretty stable and it's women's pay that go down. And it's because we don't have things like universal childcare, because we don't have things like paid leave. And so women leave the labor force and when they get back in, they're not earning as much. It's because of these things, these caregiving responsibilities and the lack of societal support for caregiving that really fuels the gender pay gap. And we saw that so dramatically during the pandemic where who was leaving the workforce during the pandemic. It was not, you know, they called it a she session. And some of that was because of the, um, you know, the the industries that were most affected were tended to have more female workers, but it had so much to do with caregiving responsibilities. Women who suddenly didn't have a daycare to send their kids to, who didn't have a school to send their kids to, they had to drastically reduce hours. They had, they got fired sometimes. They quit their job and left the labor market, all kinds of things. And you didn't just didn't see that the same way for childless workers. And you did not see that for dads either. Yeah. I often describe it in class as um, women don't stop working. Obviously you can see it in the data. Uh, they go back to work rather quickly because of the paid leave problem that we exactly. have, the childcare problem. Yeah. Um, but I often describe it as like taking your foot off the pedal, right? Like you're still accelerating into the future. You're still going forward, mm-hmm. but at a, at a reduced rate of speed. So the, the, the scope, the, the slope of your earnings is different over time. Exactly. You just never, never sort of regain where you're at. Yeah. The kinds of jobs that you take. Exactly. Because you need to take a more flexible job or you need reduced hours or whatever it is. Yeah. Well, one of the things that's really interesting, and, and this this gets into some of the, the problems with social scientific approaches to this kind of stuff, is when you look at like the economic research on this and they start to really quantitatively study like what portion of that gap is occupational segregation? What is industry segregation? What's the motherhood penalty? What's this? What's that? Um, even those categories get a little fuzzy, right? So like take, take in my own profession, the university, the issue of choice, right? Like, well, a woman chooses whether she goes for the Ivy League position or she goes for the community college. Uh, she chooses the department, she, you know, the type of major she's going to go for, all those sorts of things. But even those sorts of things, like those choices, are not made in a vacuum, right? They're made with certain constraints in mind, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. No, and I mean, my experience, you know, just in a very micro way, my own experience is that when I had babies, I took months off of work and my husband didn't. I went back part-time and my husband continued to work full-time during the pandemic. I went down to half-time so that I could facilitate the kids' education and he continued to work full-time. I think that, you know, those choices, I guess you could say, oh, that I chose to do that. And my husband made a different choice. Um, But when every, like almost every family in America is making those same choices, then you, there has to be something societally going on there. And in fact, who is getting the phone calls from school about, you know, or from the doctor or from this or from that, you know, there's just a million examples of that. Everyone is assuming that the mother is going to be taking on those responsibilities. Um, And pretty much nobody is assuming that the dad's going to cut his hours in half and facilitate virtual education for a year, you know? And so I think that, yeah, that it's sure you could look at it as choice, but it, you wouldn't be looking at it very rigorously if you just saw it as a series of tens of millions of individual choices without seeing the bigger pattern there. 
Well, and the economists we talked to didn't say, you know, occupational segregation is a choice. In fact, they said quite the opposite. They said, yes. said but um, yeah. is often often the retort you get is yes. you're choosing a different job. You're choosing a right. different industry, a different college major. Some of that is choice. I mean, I'm not going to say that that's not the case, right? Sure. Women and men do make different choices. But yeah. Many of those choices are severely constrained, especially yes. folks in the same types of industries, right? Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and so if you, it, with all the work you've done on this, are those your two favorite policies, paid leave and, and higher quality subsidized childcare? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Those are my top two. It is kind of, it is very odd when you look at the U.S. compared to other OECD countries. Like, it's not just a little bit less. Yeah. <laughs> it's nothing federally guaranteed. <laughs> yes. No, it's really messed up. The other people just can't believe it. Yeah. There's like a... Um, I'm sure you've seen it. Like there's a pew chart where it's like, you just go all the way down the list and, and us zero. <laughs> I know I have seen it. <laughs> I mean, we're laughing, we're laughing through the tears here on the podcast. Exactly. No, it's hard. It's really hard. All right. Well, before we go, if you want to check out the work of the folks at the center on budget and policy priorities, where Kathleen Romig works, you can go to cbpp.org. We will also link to some of Kathleen's research uh, on our website. We are so lucky to have had you on the show today. You're, you're such a great expert on Social Security and SSI and paid leave. Kathleen Romig, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Utterly Moderate Podcast. Before we go, we want to remind you to visit our website, utterlymoderatenetwork.com There you can find all of our podcast episodes and their companion resources our guide to reliable news outlets the contact page where you can suggest topics for future shows and more That's utterlymoderatenetwork.com Thanks again for listening We hope you'll join us on our next episode and until then we'll play you out with friends of the show The Riders in the Sky Happy trails to Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds when we're together Just sing a song and bring the sunny weather Happy trails to you Till we meet again Trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Who cares about the clouds when we're together? Just sing the song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you. 
Good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you.